Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. I'm very happy today to bring you Dr. Mark Hyman, who is the Editor-in-Chief of Alternative Therapies in Health and Medicine and one of my uh, personal heroes as far as functional medicine is concerned. Dr. Hyman has been in our program before, and today he's here to talk about, well, we've always said there's no wall between the mind and the body. In Dr. Hyman's book, The Ultra Mind Solution, is a functional medicine approach to making that point. Dr. Hyman, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. When we were speaking a few moments ago, you said the brain is not the cause of mental problems. The body is the cause of mental problems. That seems to me to get right to the crux of your book, The Ultra Mind Solution. Could you amplify on that and give us some specific examples? Well, it's interesting how we have a lot of stories about why we're sad or depressed or have ADD or can't focus or our memory is failing us. And sometimes there are stories that relate to psychological causes or things that we blame ourselves for. But more often, they're, they're the result of imbalances in our body that show up as dysfunction in our brain, or what I call a broken brain. And specifically, let's sort of look at that. Let's take someone who comes in with depression. Now, depression is not one problem, but in medicine, we group everybody together with depression as being exactly the same. If you're sad and hopeless and helpless, if you have no interest in your normal activities, if you cry easily, if you can't sleep, if you have no appetite, you're losing or gaining weight, or you're feeling hopeless and helpless, then you have something called depression. And I know what's wrong. You have this disease. It's called depression. And I know what to do for you. You need an antidepressant, which is actually what the treatment of of choice is. So clearly, depression is not a Prozac deficiency. And even though maybe imbalances in serotonin, nobody asks why. So what I'd be more interested in knowing for this person is what are the causes? And I, I would say that you know, 10 people with depression and they're all quite different and may have different causes and need different treatments, even if they have exactly the same symptoms. So one person might have a low thyroid function that leads to depression. Another might have a folic acid or B12 deficiency, another a vitamin D deficiency, yet another one might be going through perimenopause and have hormonal swings, or yet another might have blood sugar imbalances that lead to depression that we've recently recognized as linked to depression, or yet another person might have heavy metal toxicity, and we've even found that viruses can infect the emotional center of the brain and lead to depression and are cured with antivirals. So we have a number of different things that are showing up as the cause, and unless we have a way or a system of thinking about what's wrong with you, you're never going to get better. I mean, you know, there's new drug ads that show, I love these, for uh, certain antidepressants. They say, well, two-thirds of people on antidepressants don't get relief from the depression. So if you aren't getting relief from your current drugs, let's add another one. And here's another drug you can add to improve your response rate. Well, that's not the problem. The problem is that two-thirds of drugs don't really work. So you need to find out what does work. And what works is addressing the imbalances in the body, which is what I describe in the Ultramind Solution. Let's go through some of those imbalances. You mentioned B12 and folate. I think most of us think of that as physicians, at least. We think about, well, B12, pernicious anemia. If you don't have pernicious anemia and you're not an alcoholic, we don't have to worry about B12 and folate. Tell us why that's wrong. That's right. We have very sort of on or off black and white. You know, you either have rickets and a vitamin D deficiency or you're healthy. (laughs) You either have (laughs) anemia from folic acid deficiency or 
you're fine. And what we're learning is that the, these nutrients work across the continuum of biology from full-blown deficiency, which are quite serious and can lead to extremely serious conditions that can actually be cured in days, literally, with the right nutrients, to conditions that show up over weeks or months or decades even. For example, short-term vitamin D deficiency that's acute will lead to rickets. Long-term vitamin D deficiency will lead to, obviously, osteoporosis, but it may also be linked to diabetes and heart disease and cancer and autoimmune disease and many, many other problems that aren't necessarily from frank deficiency, but from insufficiencies. And the same thing with folic acid and B12. Particularly as we get older, we actually absorb nutrients less well, particularly B12. And I've seen, for example, women in their 70s who have become depressed, have tremendous fatigue, and start getting dementia. And simply by giving them higher doses of B12, by measuring actually the B12, not the B12 per se in their blood, because that's not really relevant. It's more something that's a downstream metabolite of B12 called methylmalonic acid. This is something your doctor can measure and actually indicates a B12 insufficiency. Then simply providing B12 in the right way, in her case, it was giving her B12 shots. She actually got her energy back, her depression lifted, and her memory improved. So she was literally able to cure depression and early dementia simply by giving her body the things that it needed to function at the level that they required for optimal function. So these are really widespread problems. They're way underdiagnosed. There's a new drug company now that's even understood that 35% of people have the need for a special type of folate, and they've created a new drug called Deplin, which is kind of a joke because it's really just a vitamin that they charge a lot of money for that's a special form of the vitamin called methylfolate. So we have the capacity to really transform our biology by improving function. And that's what functional medicine is. It's not about necessarily treating a disease, but really improving function. When you talk about B12 and folate, one of the things that strikes me is we're already seeing or beginning to see increasing rates of osteoporosis in people who are chronic users of proton pump inhibitors. And I, for one, think sending protonics over the counter was one potentially a colossal public health issue that may bite us on the behind in 10 years. Could you address the possibility that dementia and depression could also be linked to essentially absorptive issues caused by turning down stomach acid? Yeah, I've written a whole textbook chapter on this, actually. And I think that this is a concern I have. And when you look at the data around proton pump inhibitors, first of all, the question is, why are people having reflux in the first place? Why is everybody having heartburn? Is this a something that we should be providing millions and millions of people with a drug to deal with? Or is there really some underlying cause, such as your diet, food allergies, infections in your gut, all sorts of things, drinking too much alcohol, caffeine. These are things that can be treated through lifestyle and sometimes through modification of the digestive function. What the downside of these drugs is, is that they block your stomach acid. So why do you need stomach acid? Well, your stomach acid is there to break down protein, to digest your food, to activate digestive enzymes, to help absorb B12, to help you absorb minerals. So the consequences of this are that we've seen are increased rates of osteoporosis, increased rates of B12 deficiency because you can't absorb B12 and all the consequences of depression and dementia from that. We see decreasing mineral absorption and we see also things that change your bacterial flora in your gut and lead to more serious intestinal infections because you can't digest your food by producing acid. You get bacteria that ferment on that food and produce overgrowth and you get intestinal infections like clostridia, which are quite serious. 
and it's also been associated with increasing community-acquired pneumonia. So these are not benign drugs, and uh, the only reason they go over the counter is because the patent expires, and they need a different way of capitalizing on their investment. But it, unfortunately, it's really not safe, and these are powerful drugs that should only be used short-term by a doctor's supervision to treat and cure ulcers. This is what they were originally prescribed for, not heartburn that's caused by lifestyle problems that then have the consequences of seriously injuring your health. Yes, well, I'm always on the soapbox on that one. So, Dr. Hyman, tell me about the myth of diagnosis. What do you mean when you say that diagnosis is a myth? Well, we have 12,000 diagnoses in our code book, and we have over 230 psychiatric and mental diagnoses. And when we give people a name or a label, we think we know what's wrong with them, but we actually have no clue. Just like I said before, if you say someone has Alzheimer's or depression or ADD, it simply describes a set of symptoms that go along with those conditions, but it tells us absolutely nothing about the cause. So when I say this is a myth of disease, the, the myth is that we think we know what's wrong when we call people by these names. When you say you have bipolar or ADD or dementia or depression or OCD, we don't know what it is. I mean, I saw a girl the other day who had OCD and behavior issues, and you're not sure these nasty bugs in her gut that were affecting her brain function. We know that, for example, delirium in people with liver failure is caused by abnormal bacteria in the gut that if we treat with antibiotics, not antipsychotics, which is very interesting. We know that, for example, dementia maybe have multiple causes, such as insulin resistance from too much sugar. It can be related to hardening of the arteries from issues with cardiovascular disease. It can be related to heavy metal toxicity like mercury. It can be nutritional factors like vitamin D deficiency, vitamin B12 deficiency. I mean, I had an extraordinary case of a, a patient, someone who simply read the book, Ultramind Solution, and simply followed the program with her husband. And she said he was diagnosed with dementia. He was sliding downhill. He wasn't able to do normal activities anymore. He couldn't remember how to get back and forth into the store. He couldn't actually remember a conversation he had a few hours before or a day later. And within five days of simply changing his diet and taking a few supplements, and he must have had some reversible nutritional deficiency, but within five days, he had the diagnosis of dementia. He really didn't have Alzheimer's. He had some other metabolic thing that was corrected by changing his diet and some nutritional supplements. And his wife wrote, she said, he's able to hold his concentration now for projects for hours at a time. He can get into the car and run errands flawlessly. He'd be, he wouldn't be able to find his way back before. He could carry a conversation and remember it hours or days later. He could recall telephone numbers. She has her husband back, she said. And she sort of shocked, and I think I was a little bit shocked too, but I think that the point here is that it's so easy to say, oh, you have Alzheimer's, and that's it. And then there's no hope. It's a downward spiral. There's drugs that are recommended that have not even proven to work. And yet, from very simple principles of, of understanding how the body works, according to this new emerging science we call functional or systems medicine, we can actually understand what symptoms are out of balance and how to correct those systems that lead to good health. Well, what are the core systems then that we should be looking at rather than the old find the disease and then there'll be a drug model, which is both taught and what's financially reimbursable. But let's drop that for the moment. And okay, if that's a bad system, then how do we do this? What are the core things we should be looking at in our approach to the patient? Well, it's actually quite extraordinary as we're looking across specialties and breaking down the silos in medicine and stopping what I call the balkanization of medicine, which is you have so many specialties and different doctor for every part of your body. As we begin to understand and look across these specialties, we see there's some common emerging themes that account for 
all these diseases within those specialties. So really the walls between cardiology and neurology and gastroenterology and rheumatology, they're all breaking down because there's only a few things that go wrong. And those are the things I outline in the Ultramind Solution, which actually, by the way, people can get a free sneak preview at ultramind.com and learn more about the book. And the basic systems in the body that you have to identify imbalances in and correct imbalances that allows you to then restore normal function and restore normal brain health and make you sharp and focused and alert and connect and happy. And by the way, the side effect, you feel healthier and have more energy and lose weight and all the other things that happen. But the systems are the following. We have to optimize nutrition. And many of us are overfed and undernourished. We have to balance our hormones, which are often way out of balance, like insulin and thyroid and our stress hormones. We need to deal with inflammation. And there are many causes of inflammation, like our toxic high inflammatory diet, which is full of sugar and processed foods, uh, infections that are hidden, allergens. And then there's also digestive dysfunction that's very common. And a lot of underlying immune issues and, and systemic issues really start in the gut. And so getting a healthy gut and learning how to restore gut function is important. Many, many millions of Americans have irritable bowel syndrome and reflux, and even if they don't have symptoms, they may have problems in their gut that are brewing without them knowing it. And then, of course, there's detoxification, which is one of the key functions of our body, how to get rid of garbage and handle waste. And there are ways to optimize that system and to reduce your exposure to toxins that can help you get healthy. And, and of course, there's how your body makes energy from food and oxygen and how that system is easily injured and impaired by toxins and various stresses. And we have to give the body the capacity to make more energy because the loss of energy ultimately reflects in symptoms in the brain and fatigue and memory loss and trouble focusing and so forth, autism even. And then lastly, we have to focus on balancing the mind-body system, which is really your thoughts and beliefs and your attitudes. And clearly that's been talked a lot about. And there are some amazing pioneers in this field, like Ken Pelletier and John Kabat-Zinn and Jim Gordon, who've really talked a lot about mind-body medicine. But what we're recognizing now is that, you know, that's only one component. And that if you're toxic or B12 deficient, or your thyroid's not working, it's hard to meditate or breathe your way out of that. You have to look at both those aspects. Right. It's, well, I wanted to say a seven-legged stool, but that's actually not a really apt way of thinking about it. But there are seven threads that weave together and form health or disease, form the fabric of our being. That's right. And they're all interconnected. They're all absolutely interconnected. Like a weaving. I want to spend a little time talking about energy metabolism aspect as it relates to autism and also maybe to spend some time talking about ADHD because our focus I think always, as responsible physicians, needs first to be on the children and make sure the children have what they need as they develop because they are the most vulnerable people in our society to both toxins and to variations in diet and energy metabolism. Can you give us a little primer on the mitochondria? Because I think most of us have forgotten everything we ever knew about mitochondria, and yet they are so important, particularly when we're talking about the brain. Sure. If your brain runs out of energy, all kinds of things happen, right? We, we can't focus. We can't engage with life. That's called autism and ADD. We get demented. That's called, you know, memory loss. We get depressed. I mean, all these things have been drawn back to trouble with energy. So just briefly, and then you asked about the children, but just briefly about the mitochondria. Basically, we have to take the energy of the sun, which is stored in food, either in plants or in animals that eat the plants, and we have to combust that with oxygen. And we have to burn it like gasoline in our engine. And we do that in these little parts of our cells called mitochondria. These are the energy factories. 
and they're very sensitive to injury. They they have a big job to do, and they produce a lot of energy for us to run everything, but they're easily injured through toxins, infections, allergens, stress, bad diet. And so our job is to try to keep them healthy, try to give them the things they need to thrive, and, and take away the things that are impairing their thriving. And their dietary things, nutrients, exercise is a huge thing that helps your mitochondria stay healthy. And it's really necessary for not just mood and cognitive disorders, but it's really the central agent that is involved in the aging process. If this is injured or damaged, then we age more rapidly. That's why GlaxoSmithKline just spent $750 million paying for a company that made a supplement called Resveratrol that regulates mitochondrial function as we age that is like the master switch on aging. So it's actually extraordinarily important, and it is important in all sort of neurocognitive and mood disorders as well. The idea that children with autism have more vulnerability to environmental toxins, particularly heavy metals, would seem to lead to the idea that the mitochondria are more vulnerable in these children and that that could account for some of their brain dysfunction. Could you comment on that and then also comment on autism and some of the cases that you've treated? Sure. Well, one of the things that we're finding is that there's a lot of oxidative stress and inflammation in all chronic disease and, and in brain diseases. And in autism, it's magnified dramatically. So in many of the kids I see with autism, their levels of oxidative stress are you know just off the chart. I mean, we measure this, and it's pretty extraordinary to see this. As at first, I thought it was a lab error. But uh, the oxidative stress both is a result of mitochondrial problems and the cause. Uh, So anything that causes oxidative stress or free radical injury will damage the mitochondria. And when the mitochondria aren't working properly, they are producing a lot of oxidants. They actually release free radicals, and there's a system of handling that. There's superoxide dismutase and glutathione peroxidase, and there's other catalase that actually are are natural antioxidant systems that that sort of mitigate the influence or the injury that comes from from our metabolism, which is normal. But when that's overwhelmed, then we can't keep up with it, and we generate tremendous amounts of oxidants and oxidative stress. Now, that just leads to mitochondrial injury and mitochondrial death. So in these children, they're very susceptible to any kind of insult and anything that leads to that, which is a large series of things we've identified, such as heavy metals like mercury, lead, infections, chronic viral infections, fungal infections, and nutritional deficiencies, which magnify these problems like B12 or folate or B6 or quirky genes that are formed in in sort of groups that actually lead to really very significant susceptibilities that then get triggered when various insults happen. And I've seen, you know, some amazing things. I've just seen so many children who've had remarkable results. I mean, not everybody gets better all the time, but there's always some improvement and some often dramatic improvements. One little boy just came to mind who came to see me about three years old and had just been diagnosed with aggressive autism. It was completely normal until he was about two and a half. And then after he'd had every single immunization, not, not that immunizations are bad, but that they, there's a lot of load on the immune system. Plus he had a number of infections, you know, just tremendous inflammation. And he wasn't focusing, he wasn't connecting, he wasn't talking. He had withdrew into his own world. And the parents were distraught and were basically told that, yes, he had autism and that they should sort of just learn to accept this and understand that he's going to need special help in schools and behavioral therapy and there otherwise are really no therapies. So they were pretty desperate. I mean, he had um, really wonderful family and parents and basically lost his language and became detached and withdrawn and less interactive and couldn't relate in his normal way. And he also had some other things that were going on. Of course, nobody really thought anything about this. For example, he had very 
bad smelling, sticky stools, dark circles under his eyes, constantly itchy ears. And those are the clues that I use to help figure out what's going on with him. And when we look careful at these biological systems that, that go awry and that are really sort of manifesting as these clinical features of autism, gut dysfunction, about 95% of them have that. 75% have immune dysfunction. This is documented by the UC Davis folks. Johns Hopkins, they've identified diffuse inflammation in the brains of these children. We've seen other data that looks at toxicity as being implicated in oxidative stress and so forth. And there's all sorts of things we were able to look at. So we looked at genetic predispositions. We found this little boy had problems with glutathione and detoxification. We found that he had trouble with folate metabolism. We found that he had also very high antibodies when it came to inflammation in his immune system, very high antibodies to gluten, to oh, 28 foods which were really indicating that his gut was abnormal and he had increased intestinal permeability. He had all kinds of problems in his gut, three species of yeast. He had very high levels of bacterial overgrowth. He had partially digested proteins in his gut that were affecting his brain that we picked up on urinary analysis. He had low levels of amino acids and minerals like zinc, magnesium, and uh, impaired methylation. So he had all sorts of things that were clues, very low fatty acids, essential fatty acids, mitochondrial problems. So we sort of identified all these problems and all we did, what we did was very, very simple. We simply followed a sort of three-step program for him, which was one, to correct his digestive imbalances and remove his food allergies. So I got rid of gluten and, and IgG foods and I treated his small bowel bacterial overgrowth with a non-absorbed antibiotic and I gave him yeast uh, treatment with an antifungal. I gave him lots of healthy bacteria and gave him digestive enzymes. And within a, two weeks of doing this, that was my first step, he started to talk. <laughs> he went from not talking to talking. It was quite dramatic. And then second step, we started really dramatically fixing some of the nutritional deficiencies, uh, zinc and magnesium, B12, folate, and cod liver oil for fish oil and, and CoQ10 to help his mitochondria. And then step three, which was quite interesting, was we really help him detox. And one of the things that gets stuck in these kids is the ability to actually turn on certain enzymes because they, they need much higher levels of B12 because the enzymes are poisoned. So we give very high doses of intramuscular B12 shots. And this little boy literally woke up. He went from not being able to respond to his name, not focusing, not look at you in the eye, not paying attention in any of his behavioral activities and management, to being present. And over time, we helped remove his heavy metals. But the B12 was really interesting because it opened up a whole pathway of function that he had limited before. So it was very exciting. And now he, uh, his father took him to school. He's about four and a half now. And father took him to school and, and he was no longer considered autistic and he wasn't allowed in autistic schools and he went into a regular school last fall in September and went in there and connected with all the children and played with them, looked at them in the eye and really was, was a normal boy and uh, it was quite quite startling actually. I'm struck by a couple of things in what you describe here and one of them is a little bit of a practical question which is when you have a three-year-old you can control what they eat. You have control over what they have access to, or at least relative control. And when I recently had the experience of caring for a hyperactive relative who was in his teens, and we, we tried a lot of dietary interventions as part of what we did, but compliance was awful. I mean, the sugar craving was well established, and so 
we were just a bunch of crazy Northern California kooks who said, you know, sugar's making you hyperactive, kid. And he wasn't compliant. And when the child gets older, this little boy in particular, I'm wondering how many older children are able to stay with this program, particularly the gluten. We'll talk about gluten in a moment because I do want you to explain that it's not just the antibodies, that there's other ways that gluten can be a problem. Any practical advice? And do you have longitudinal experience in older children that you can point to? Well, I do. And, it, you know, it's a, it's a combination of their social situation, the family, how much the kid wants to change, how motivated they are. And I think there is a problem with this temporary psychosis of children between the ages of about 14 and 17, where they're they basically, <laughs> they're from another planet. And I've had a couple of teenagers and they just, there's this period of time where they're developing in such a way that they're individuating and they're rebelling and they're, there's just sort of sort of developmental things that really make it difficult for them to be compliant. But it's not impossible. I've seen many kids who, who are motivated because you, you have to help them connect with their pain center. And if you help them understand where it is they're suffering and, and how this can affect that suffering and, and get them enrolled in that, then all of a sudden, then there may be some buy-in. Okay. You've mentioned in your book that there are three different ways that gluten is damaging to the body. I've always thought of terms of just the IgG antibody complexing with the gluten and creating an immune complex, which then circulates, and the antibodies to our own tissue, the tissue transglutaminase being present in a lot of other body tissues. And so once we cross-react from the gluten and make this autoantibody, then we start attacking our own system. But there's another way, at least one more way, that you talk about in the book. Could you tell us about that? Absolutely. I think that, you know, one of the um, the most interesting things about gluten is that it's really changed in terms of historical bread intake. You know, I say, well, bread's a staff of life. It's been around forever. Why is it suddenly a problem? And I think it's important to mention that the gluten that we're eating today in the United States is different than the gluten that was eaten 100 or 200 years ago, or even that's eaten in Europe and many countries today. It's a hybridized such that it is producing much higher contents of gluten, which makes you have large, fluffy, puffy muffins and bread and Wonder Bread. <laughs> it's changed the actual structure of the gluten, and it seems to be much more allergenic. And you combine that with a diet that's high in sugar, low in fiber, where people are taking acid-blocking drugs and antibiotics and anti-inflammatories that disrupt their normal gut function, where they're under a lot more stress. All those things influence their our sort of management of keeping the outside world out and letting the good things in. Like a coffee filter, you have to kind of let the good stuff out and the, through and the, get the coffee, and you have to keep the grounds on the other side of the filter. Well, when that breaks down, all of a sudden, 60% of your immune system starts reacting to these foreign proteins like gluten. And there can be multiple different kinds of reactions. There's a classic celiac disease which is IgA, tissue transglutaminase antibody elevations, uh, along with perhaps uh, antiglidin antibody elevations. And then there's more IgG-dominant reactions, which are IgG antiglidin antibodies. And then there's other delayed type 3 allergy responses to gluten grains as well, which are quite common. So there's all those responses. Those are more serious and autoimmune in nature, and some are more just inflammatory in nature. And then there's the role of these peptides that are formed because of maldigestion. So there's particularly in kids like with autism or mood or behavioral disorders, there's disruption in some of the normal enzymes that are functioning in the gut. And you can't break down the protein and the gluten, and you get these weird morphine-like peptides that act like psychedelic drugs in the brain and make these kids nuts. 
And then you have glutamate, which is made from gluten. And the glutamate actually is an excitotoxin. So when you have too much glutamate, you know, we need some, but it's actually a neurotransmitter that overexcites the brain. And that leads to mitochondrial injury and death. And it's like just putting your foot on the gas and not letting it up. It'll over-rev your engine. And that's what happens with our brain cells, and they literally get fried. So that's why people get headaches and feel bad when they have MSG, because it's monosodium glutamate. And the same kind of glutamate can come from eating too much gluten. Now, is that being manufactured in the gut, or is that being manufactured in the brain? Well, the gluteum morphins are in the gut, and then uh, glutamine is transformed in the body from gluten and and I'm assuming some degree in the gut, and then you, you'll have this more systemic glutamate reaction. Okay. So I'd never heard of the morphine-like qualities of these partially digested proteins before. Has that been demonstrated? I mean, have, have they been isolated and all of that? Oh, yes. There's over 500 uh, scientific references in my book, and many of them talk about some of these gluteocasiomorphins documenting their role in various psychiatric disorders, including schizophrenia. We actually measure these, and I see that once we fix the digestive tract, they go down and the behavior changes. And it, clinically, for me, that's where it counts. You know, is it a theoretical thing or is it real? Well, it's real, and I see it in my clinic. I treat it, and people get better, and the peptides go away, and digestion improves, and the symptoms get better. I want to take a moment, since you alluded to your references, and just thank you. Because as a scientist first and a recovering conventional doctor, I really like references. And you have provided essentially good peer-reviewed documented references for just about every declarative statement that you've made in the course of this interview. And I, for one, want to thank you very much. I'm sure that took a great deal of effort and time. And so many people don't take the time to back up their declarative statements. And I find it very frustrating reading many other authors, including authors in functional medicine. Yeah. Well, the thing is, this is coming from two ends. One is I'm very uh, passionate about understanding the mechanisms and the biology and the science behind it. So I tend to read a lot and look at the literature in these different areas to try to see what's out there and put the pieces together in a new way. And the second and really more importantly is where I learn this is from the practice of medicine, using functional medicine to treat chronic illness. And so over the years, I've had tremendous ability to, to gather data, look at information, see patterns, make connections. I find it's really been a real blessing for me to be able to do. And that has allowed me to really understand the literature as I read it, because of what I'm seeing is reflected in my practice. So they feed each other. Yeah, yeah, they definitely do. And it makes you willing to plow through some pretty dense stuff in the hope of actually being able to use it to help someone. Let's talk about molds. We're in a very moldy area here in Northern California, and you make some very interesting statements about the risks of molds in the households and how significant an effect that can have on our brains. Yeah, it is an unfortunate thing. I mean, it's nobody's fault per se. It's simply uh, problems with construction or flooding or mold likes to grow in wet, damp places. And if we have a wet, damp place in our house, if it's the round, it'll take up house. And the problem is that these molds are often invisible. They often don't have any smell or odor. Sometimes you can actually smell them. If you go to a musty, moldy building, you'll know. But molds produce not only spores, which can become allergenic for people and create allergy, but more importantly, they create mycotoxins. Mycotoxins are mold toxins that are released from mold, that are neurotoxic, that lead to cognitive symptoms, memory problems, brain fog, depression, fatigue. 
And unless you really ask about it in your medical history and you have someone really look at their place of work or living and investigate it, it's often going to be missed. It's unfortunate, but the insurance industry has come down really hard on the laboratories who were looking at these things. So there were some laboratories in California, actually, that were measuring mycotoxin antibodies and specific molds, some of the highly pathogenic molds like stachybotrys, and they got shut down, not because they were a bad lab, but because they were getting too many insurance claims that were based on these laboratory analyses that showed that the patients had the same antibodies to the toxins and the molds in their blood as they had molds in the rooms that they were living in. That created, you know, sort of irrefutable evidence that was hard to fight in court. And the insurance companies came down really hard on some of these labs and shut them down. And it's unfortunate because as a practitioner, I relied on a lot of that to actually help uh, identify what the issues were and see if it was a problem. There are treatments for it. There are certainly treatments for it. And there's a good website called biotoxin.info, Richie Shoemaker has, that actually lists some of these things. So I think that's really helpful to sort of know about and think about as sort of on the spectrum of things that could be a problem. When a person has mold in their house, are there practical ways of eliminating it or are they just stuck having to move? No, they are mold remediation experts, and you need to find someone who's an environmental mold remediation expert, come in, evaluate the problem, and make recommendations for mold remediation. It can sometimes be very expensive. Sometimes it's not fixable. I mean, in a few cases, they've actually had to go ahead and shut down and stop all activity and actually go and tear down the house and start over again. (laughs) It seems a rather extreme and also, you know, unaffordable solution. Well, if the insurance company pays for it, it's not unaffordable. Which insurance company would that be? Well, one of my patients that I mentioned to you, she had this exact thing with the laboratory testing documenting the molds in her house, and the insurance company had to pay a million dollars. So her homeowner's insurance? Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, that's the question, is if indeed the problem is terribly widespread, there won't be a resource, a money resource to fix it. And it's a scary thought that we could be all poisoning ourselves. I guess step one is open the windows, maybe uh, clear out the toxins on a regular basis so they don't accumulate too high. No, that's not that's not going to work. <laughs> okay. You need to find uh, out if there's mold in your house and you need to have someone help you get rid of it and then remediate it. And mostly it's not that dramatic in terms of having to tear down your house. It can be fixed. Okay. Another thing I often get questions about is cell phones and electromagnetic field phenomenon and its effect on the brain. I really respect your knowledge, and I'd love you to comment on that issue. Well, I think there's kind of a problem here. One is the absence of evidence isn't the evidence of absence. Mm -hmm. In other words, just because it hasn't been completely proven doesn't mean it's not an issue. And I try to think about how we might be doing harm in our world and try to focus on using ways to sort of mitigate that through the precautionary principle. So if something could be a problem, you know, we should be cautious instead of waiting to prove that it's a problem. Like it's like you put uh, thalidomide in the drug supply and then you wait until it's see if it's a problem and then you stop it. That's not too good of a plan. But I think that in, in terms of electromagnetic frequency, clearly there's evidence that EMF exposure has impact. It affects our health. Clearly, we are electromagnetic beings. We have EEG waves. We have EKG, right? So our bodies are electromagnetic fields. Our prediction of energy is all electromagnetic. And you wonder if if these phones can't be used on planes or in hospitals because they interfere with equipment. How might they affect our own health? 
if you look at some of the data, that there's, there's convincing data on a cellular level that it interferes with oxidative stress levels, affects cellular function. So there's the thermal effect as well. You know, this is microwaves. So, you know, when you think about putting your head in a microwave, that's probably not a good idea, but that's exactly what cell phones are. They, they have microwave radiation, and, and they do penetrate into our skull. I mean, many of us know we've used our cell phones, and it gets kind of hot on our ear. Well, what are the implications of that? So I think we have to think about that and try to reduce our exposures by using speaker phones or not using cell phones or corded phones when we can. There are certain devices that help diffuse earphones that diffuse EMFs. There are other technologies that are being developed that may help us protect ourselves from EMFs. I don't know how effective they are, but it's an area that I'm paying close attention to because I think we need to to have some solutions because I don't think this wireless world is going away. (laughs) No, it isn't. I've seen devices that are promoting themselves as eliminating the EMFs or making them safe that are little squares that you glue on the back of your cell phone. I've looked at them and I haven't seen any references in any literature and they haven't responded to my calls. So I think that one's pretty bogus. Uh, You have an opinion on that? Well, it may or may not be, but I think I know some people are involved in this. And I would say that, that what I'm interested in is actually studying them. I think there's, I have friends with um, Martha Herbert at, at Harvard, who's a neurologist who looks at, you know, MRIs and functional MRIs and functional EEGs. And it wouldn't be too difficult to design a study to actually show the impact. You know, I mean, they can actually do a study where they do acupuncture needles on people who are in a functional MRI and look at changes in the brain. So, we certainly can do that, and uh, I think this just needs to be the will and the, and the funding. What kind of headset do you use? Well, to be honest with you, I use the one that Apple gave <laughs> me, <laughs> my little iPhone, but I, I don't even know if that's good. It might, who knows, it might maybe make it worse. As someone told me, it makes your head like an antenna. But I also try to use speakerphone when I can, or I'll you know, use a landline when I can. Let's spend some time talking about fatty acid supplementation. That's so important. And, of course, again, we have a historical shift in our diet with the advent of the Industrial Revolution, which may turn out to have a real joker in the deck, so to speak. Could you speak to that issue? Yeah, I mean, fatty acids are the stuff we're made of. You know, 60% of our brain is fat. We have 100 trillion cells. Every single one of them is made up of a fatty membrane, of which a big portion is omega-3 fats and other phospholipids. And if our structure isn't right, then our function isn't going to be right. We see this clearly in the evidence around omega-3 fats and and the brain. I talk a lot about this in the Ultramind Solution, that the evidence around omega-3 fats in terms of depression, in terms of dementia, in terms of ADD, autism, schizophrenia, in bipolar disease, it's really overwhelming. Even things such as, you know, in violent criminals and violent crime, they, one study showed that simply giving fish oil and a multivitamin to a group of violent criminals in prisons compared to a control group was able to reduce violent crime by over 35% in the prison. So we're talking about things that can increase IQ in children looking at breast milk and DHA. But you know what? In the United States, women have the lowest concentrations of breast milk of any nation in the world. The lowest concentrations of DHA in breast milk, you mean? The lowest concentrations, yeah, the lowest concentrations of omega-3 DHA, which is docosahexaenoic acid. It's the most important component of our of our brain cells, and 60% of our brain is mostly DHA. And so how do we expect to have kids who can focus and learn and pay attention and remember and uh, have happy moods without that? We see the reason for that is that our dietary oils, uh, soy oil, is consumed in enormous quantities. It's uh, become the majority of the oil in our diet. It's 
uh, subsidized by the government and, and it's uh, ubiquitous and it's processed and it's creating a huge imbalance of omega-6 to omega-3 oils, which leads to a lot of inflammation as well as a lot of these sort of uh, problems with membranes and, and just cellular function. So if a person is seeking to build a better brain, one of the things they'd be well advised to do would be to take fish oils. Do you think that it matters whether you take one of those oils that's sort of targeting the heart where there's more EPA than DHA? Will will you still get the brain benefit? I understand that the brain is mainly DHA and the anti-inflammatory vascular benefit seems to be more EPA related. Yeah, well, I, you know, why choose if you can have both, right? I recommend usually EPA, DHA supplements, and sometimes with people who have more neurocognitive stuff, I might add some extra DHA to the whole mix. What kind of doses do you use in that circumstance? Usually, most ratios of EPA to DHA are usually 300, 200, 300 milligrams, 200 milligrams. Right. But it depends on the supplements. Some have very low concentrations of these so you can get a gram of fish oil that has maybe 100 total of omega-3 fats, or you can get one that has 700 milligrams of omega-3 fats within a one-gram fish oil capsule. So depends on the concentration. Well, what I'm saying is how many milligrams of DHA do you think is appropriate amount for someone to be taking in, let's say for maintenance? For maintenance, I think probably, you know, one to two grams of a EPA-DHA combination. So Let's say you've got 300 of EPA and 200 of DHA in a pill. That's 500. So you take two to four pills. Okay. And for treatment, like your autistic boy, I'm sure he got DHA at a fairly significant milligram per kilogram dose. Yeah. So I would give much, much higher doses. And I monitor it. These are polyunsaturated fats. They're easily oxidized. So you have to give antioxidants along with them. And, you know, I look at fatty acid levels and monitor that. And that's usually the way I sort of approach it. So you're empirical, monitor the fatty acid in the blood, get it into an optimum range. Yeah, that's right. Just some protocol questions since I'm starting to practice this way. I take advantage of having you here. And again, we are, of course, all learning as we go, as you've pointed out, because this is a new science. Yeah. One of the things that you have on your website at ultramind.com is all of these questionnaires about trying to identify where your deficiencies or excesses may be. And I wanted to emphasize to people that they can go to your website. Could you tell us a little bit more about what's available on that website? My belief is that we need to empower people to take care of their own health. And so I try to provide a lot of self-care tools. And I think that's really important because most of the things, like uh, that story of the man who recovered from Alzheimer's just by reading the book and doing a few things I suggested, is because... Your health care is really your job. You know, if you get some serious trauma or illness, need acute care medicine, then, yeah, you need the medical care system. But your health care is your job. And so I think people need to be empowered with the information that allows them to know what's going on with them. And so on the website, I start up by providing various tools. But there's so much more in the book, and I actually have a home coaching program. And I, the questionnaires are really important because what I've done is I've basically used my knowledge and I've work with a lot of other practitioners and experts to really develop questionnaires that can be used to ask questions to determine where the areas of imbalance are. So how can you tell if you're magnesium deficient or if you're omega-3 fat deficient or if you have a need for B12 or maybe how do you know if you have inflammation or digestive issues or maybe you're toxic. So there are a lot of questions that a doctor will use in evaluating his patient in the clinic that gives tremendous insight. And so without even doing a lot of tests, I can usually come up with what's going on with people through these questionnaires. And I'm simply sharing 
my questionnaires that I, it's like getting a personal visit with a doctor, going through these questionnaires and then getting a score and seeing where your issues are. And then you can work through the recommendations that often are mostly self-care recommendations, changes in diet, various types of supplements, exercise, mind-body therapies, eliminating environmental toxins. And I talk all about this. And the website's fun too, because there's a inspiring stories. You can actually read stories that are first-hand reports from patients, kids with that little boy with autism, his stories on here. And then they interview the, the parents. You can listen to the parents' story. You can leave the audio. There's all kinds of video on the website. You can watch different video clips from media. I've been on from the Today Show or Martha Stewart or The View or CNN. And, and you can really sort of get a good idea about how to actually engage in this approach for yourself. So I'm trying to provide as much information as I can without actually giving away the book because my publisher wouldn't let me do that. <laughs> <laughs> but you're giving giving away an awful lot, and thank you for that. I understand that, speaking of the media, that you're in town there to be doing a PBS special on the Ultramind concept. That's right. I was also very struck that you had a chance to speak in front of the Senate hearings on health care reform, and I, I know I and my audience would love to hear some of your talking points there. And how you felt you were received. Well, received very well. I think it was really exciting. I mean, I, I had met with Senator Clinton in the fall in Harkin and before she became Secretary of State and uh, really to bring the awareness of functional medicine and into the Senate and to help make it part of health care reform. And this hearing was a follow-on to that, and we also invited Dr. Oz, Dr. Andrew Weil, and Dr. Dean Ornish, and the four of us testified, as well as other testimony that happened on Monday with Dr. Wayne Jonas and Jim Gordon and some other key people, Brian Berman. So there was really an enormous openness from the doctors there to creating change, and also Senator Mikulski and Senator Harkin. From my point of view, what I really laid out was that we can't just change the way we do medicine, but we have to change the medicine we do. Because if we correct everything else in healthcare, if we get everything right around healthcare reform in terms of access, financing, reduction of medical errors, malpractice reform, implementing medical records, and we don't do it for the right kind of medicine, and the content's wrong, then we're going to get into big trouble. It's not going to matter. Because we fundamentally have to change our paradigm of how we think about chronic disease in this country, which is what's killing us. And we have the technology, we have the science, it's more effective, it's cheaper, and it's accessible. It needs to be supported through major initiatives and funding education and demonstration projects and retraining a new generation of practitioners, providing the support that this needs to actually be implemented because it's fundamentally the right answer for what our problem is. So they were very receptive to that, and afterwards we met with their aides in the afternoon, Dr. Oz and Dr. Jeff Bland and myself, and uh, Dean Ornish met with the health aides of all the staffers for the uh, senators. And then yesterday I went to the White House and met with some people there to talk to them about this as well. So it's really very exciting. There's a real openness to this. There's a real movement. And uh, I think uh, we're shifting through some exciting things. I've just been collaborating with one of the top universities in the world, developing a research program in functional medicine. We've got $5 million donation to start a research program. So it's all happening. I am so glad to hear it because... One of the things that has run through my head through all of the discussion of healthcare reform is, oh, great, now everyone will have access to all the antibiotics for colds and flus they want. Right. And, and it's like, oh, that's going to just make everything worse. That's right. But I'm so glad that you're getting an ear in Washington, and it gives me hope. Thank you. You're welcome. It really does. You're welcome. 
Well, I know that you've been most generous with me to give me this much time, and I need to give you some time to mindfully eat your lunch and digest and attend to your own health. You're going to be a very, very important person for the transmission of this information and also to help reorganize medicine. And thank you again for giving us this time. Dr. Mark Hyman's new book is The Ultramind Solution, and his website is ultramind.com. So please go there and join and stay tuned because we're in very, very exciting times and hopefully we'll see a renaissance in good health. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.